Good morning. Come on, talk to me like you're awake. Good morning. Gentlemen, raise your right hand if you're married and repeat after me. I, and state your name. Knew you'd do that. I need this marriage conference. Glad you've admitted that. Wives, you just heard it from their mouths. Uh, So be sure to sign up and register for that marriage conference. It's going to be an awesome time to nourish and strengthen our relationships with our spouses. And speaking of registration, we've got a huge women's event here tonight. Hundreds of women will gather and worship and eat good food and hear a really powerful message. And so uh, that registration is still open in the lobby before you go today. You can also get tickets online. But if there's a woman that would raise their hand who does not have a ticket yet, anybody, right there, come get these two, please. Come on up. Here, you can grab them for her. And I'm giving you two because... Um, you're, you're going to invite a friend. How about that? That ticket, a second ticket is for a friend. So, uh, the last thing I want to tell you is a few weeks ago, I shared about going to Starbucks. Um, and, and I, I shared that story because I, I spoke, I gave a sermon on how it's hard for us to see people receive things that they don't deserve, right? Message on grace. And I shared that I go through the drive-thru and the lady inevitably says, do you want to pay the blessing forward? The person in front of you has purchased your drink. And I don't have a choice, right? Because what if that person goes to Redeemer? I'm like, yeah, I got to pay. So, well, I'm just kidding. It's like Christian conduct, right? So I'm like, yeah, I hand my card over and my drink every single time I go to Starbucks is a dopio. It's $2.12. Every time that I pay the blessing forward and I give my card to pay for the car behind me, I pay for her and all of her colleagues. And she hands me my card and a 20-something dollar receipt. And so this morning, I'm at Starbucks. (laughs) To make matters worse, it's Sunday morning. It's church morning, she says, the car in front of you has paid for your drink. I'm like, of course they have. (laughs) So I hand my card over. I'm like, yeah, I want to pay it forward. She didn't even have to ask me. And she, she said, actually, sir, there's nobody in line right now. <laughs> Thank you, God. This is great. Praise the Lord. For once, I can just get my $2.12 dopio and get out of there. But why not take a moment and talk to her? So I said, ma'am, I got to tell you, this is so funny because I'm a pastor. Two weeks ago, I was, I was sharing with our church, you know, how it's hard whenever you just want $2.12 dopio and you pay somebody's caramel macchiato up, upside down with no foam and all this stuff. And, and, and I'm telling her about this story that I shared with all of you two weeks ago. And she goes, I'm sorry, hang on. Welcome to Starbucks. <laughs> At this point, she had already given my card back. I gave it back to her. I said, come on, let me pay. So the trend continues. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, please, in your Bible or your iDevice, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a red one probably right underneath you, and in the red Bible, we're on page 1694, 1694. We're in a series called Irresistible Force, and we're taking five weeks from uh, Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at the early church. As, As Bill shared last week, I love how he said it, that We see in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was turned loose on the church. Peter preached an unforgettable sermon. I love the conclusion of his sermon. Repent and be baptized. This is Acts 2.38. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So we see the presence of the Holy Spirit in this first generation of Christians. And after the Holy Spirit arrived and Peter preached the word of God, 3,000 people converted to follow Jesus to get into this movement of Christianity. But what happened then? I'm glad you asked. The Bible gives an account of how these converts lived in relation to God and in relation to one another. And in this series, we're acknowledging together the many ways that we can learn from their example. Now, Acts chapter 2 is not prescriptive. Nowhere in this description of the early church do we see the words, you need to live this way. This is a descriptive chapter. It tells how the early church lived, this first generation of Christians, how they did church, how they did life. If we read Acts 2 and we glean from its truth, I just believe that we would be ignorant. Ignorant to not acknowledge and learn from uh, their zeal, their dedication, their lifestyle. And by the way, keep in mind, we're not talking about a small group of people here. So for anyone who's saying, you know, this, this kind of lifestyle seems pretty radical, like this is just a small group of radical Christians that were kind of crazy about their faith, right? No, 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 this worked on a large scale. This is a description of how thousands of people lived, Uh, There's a quote by Jonathan Parnell. He says, the local church is a community of Christians who live as the -the on-the-ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus, and they do it by advancing his gospel in distance and depth. Redeemer, you are an on-the-ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus everywhere you go, and that is a part of your job description as Christ's followers that you can never take a break from. It's 24-7 all the time. We're on the ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus. And as we walk through Acts chapter 2, we have to delicately measure Redeemer Covenant Church. How do we line up in comparison with this early church? How do we line up in our own hearts individually? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us even, to challenge us of our lifestyles. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. All the believers, say all the believers. Everyone, all inclusively together. They were all together. Physically, no. I mean, to say that they were all together when these large churches weren't yet built is not true. They were all together in their mindset, in their mentality. It says they had everything in common. Does this mean that their hobbies and interests all lined up? Like, All of them either scrapbooked or golfed? No, that's not what this is saying. Being together and having everything in common has to do with their mentality. They were unified. They were unified in spirit. They had the same goals. They had the same bond in the way that they lived. They followed the same commander. There was no confusion. They were Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, in the flesh. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. Make every effort, everyone say every effort, because an effort always trumps an excuse, right? We'll get back to that in a moment. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, unity of the Spirit, unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all 
and through all and in all. One, 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 one. They were unified across the board. And in verse 45, we see our focus today. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, I have a question for you. It's going to step on your toes a little. So let's just get that part out of the way. Slide your foot over and step on your neighbor's toe. Go ahead. Give, give them a nice, good stomp here. Um, if you saw someone in need, and let's say you didn't have the cash on hand to help them, but all you had were your properties and possessions. Would you sell them? I mean, if you saw somebody in need, would you sell what you had to meet and fulfill their needs? I mean, come on, this is insane, isn't it? This is crazy. This is radical. This is bizarre. How did they get to this kind of mindset? Let me offer you this thought about God's economy. This is a summarizing statement about God's economy. The body of Christ possesses enough. We know that. The body of Christ possesses enough, but not enough for us to keep what we don't need. We have enough to meet every need of every person in every nation across this world. We have enough. But we don't have enough to keep what we do not need. These people, and next week I'll unpack a different verse in this chapter, many of these people lived at or below the poverty line of that first generation of Christians. And still they're pooling their resources together and they were giving to everyone and anyone who had a need, anyone who had need, not their fellow churched people that they had everything in common with. Anyone outside of their fellowship Anyone could receive the benefit of this church's generosity. Now, I believe that a huge attribute of the growth, the radical, rapid growth of the early church hinged upon this generous spirit. Many other things that they did, pray and, and broke bread together and met in each other's homes and worshiped and went to the temple, all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're an outsider, it's like, I don't know what they're doing. That's kind of weird. I don't really want to partake in that. But wait a minute. Did you see what that group did? You've got to be kidding me. They literally, they, they, just, they went into the market and sold what they had. And then they brought the money to my friends who had a need. And my friends aren't even a part of their, their circle of worship. Generosity is a growth mechanism. It's so attractive and intriguing and kind and countercultural. It's inviting. I mean, outsiders probably looked at our ancestor brothers and sisters in Christ and thought they were nuts. Why in the world are they doing this and living this way? A great example of this kind of generous collective mindset happened on September 11th, 2001. In the hours following the attack on the World Trade Center, something extraordinary happened that to many of us, went unnoticed. All modes of transportation out of Manhattan were shut down, all of them. All of the roads, the subways, the tunnels, the bridges, everything was shut down and the people could not get out. And so they fled to the shoreline of the Hudson River 
And as you see in this photo, they were hoping to escape by boat. For the first time, thousands of people thought that maybe I could get out of here by boat. They weren't disappointed. The U.S. Coast Guard had sent a message over the radio, all available boats. He said, this is the Ice Age Coast Guard. Anyone willing to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan, report to Pier 25 immediately. And boats all over the place who had already seen the visible smoke in the sky fled to the scene. And within 20 minutes, boats filled the horizon. They went into the storm. Captain Vincent Andalino shared in an interview, I could not stand by and watch people suffer. I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand by and watch people suffer. The only good part about that day is that everybody helped. That's all he said. The only good thing I can tell you from that day is everybody contributed. This boat rescue was not planned. This boat rescue was not an advance notice bringing people in for specific training on strategy. This boat rescue was a bunch of captains who were willing to do whatever it took to help others. That day, the same captain, Vincent Andalini, and hundreds of other small, small boat captains, they contributed to the largest sea evacuation in history. It was larger than that of World War II where 339,000 British and French soldiers were rescued from Dunkirk over the course of nine days. This boat rescue, September 11th, nearly half a million civilians were rescued by boat in less than nine hours because people worked together because people came around a need, because people were not inconvenienced by another's emergency. I know for me, I'm guilty of t at times of seeing someone in need and thinking, what's it gonna cost me? What's it gonna cost me? I mean, 339,000 people in World War II in, in nine days. Half a million people in nine hours. I mean, we can learn something from these captains, can't we? We can learn something from the way they responded. Are any of you guilty of making excuses when you see someone in need around you? I am. And my favorite is when we drive by and see that man or woman on the side of the street begging. We say, I'm not going to give any cash. They'll just buy alcohol. Maybe you're right. Your, your assumption could be true. And maybe handing them cash could be a temptation to them to return to a bad habit. But friends, don't just drive away. If that's our excuse to not meet an immediate need in this person, then pull your car over and walk into a restaurant and buy a really nice meal for that person. Walk up to them and deliver them a meal. Sit down with them. Engage in dialogue with somebody that's different than you. Somebody that you don't have a lot in common with. And let's get rid of that question, what's this going to cost me? What's this going to cost me? You know the saying, opposites attract, right? This is true in my marriage. Uh, I'm a saver and my wife's a giver. I plan for the famine. She wakes up in the morning to look around and see who's in their own kind of famine. And then she 
tries to meet their needs. She's the most selfless human I've ever met in my entire life. Something happened years ago that crushed both of our spirits, and I was the guilty party. Uh, Before we had children, we spent a lot of time in the Oklahoma City homeless shelter, and in many cases spent the night there. I would spend the night on the On the male side, she would stay on the female side. We'd meet back up in the morning, go to breakfast, talk about the night. We spent a lot of time with people that were hurting, people that were broken, people that needed a way out. And she befriended a a woman who was pregnant. And she got a phone call one day from the staff there. They said, Andrea, we know that you're friends with this individual. She's gone into labor. And so that night... We get home and Andrea runs in the door enthusiastically. You're not going to believe what happened today. She went into labor. She had the baby. It was amazing. I went to Target. Man, I filled the basket with burp rags and, and passies and diapers and clothes and toys and took them up and delivered. She was so thankful I got to hold the baby. She's adorable. And the whole time, gentlemen, you may know where I'm going. I'm sitting there going, you went to Target. And you know the other thing I heard more than anything else? You filled the basket? (laughs) Like a $25 gift card would have been great. Why did you have to fill the basket? So that's what I'm thinking. And then when my thoughts become my words, that's when I get in trouble. I said, babe, how much did you spend at Target? I didn't say, babe, that's so wonderful. I'm so thankful you got that call. I'm so thankful that I'm married to such a selfless, sacrificial woman who always puts everyone else's needs in front of her own. I said, how much did you spend at Target? And let me tell you, when her eyes filled with tears, I knew what my words had done. I believe it was the same year that my mother-in-law told me that God was taking her hands and turning them over and showing her how to release everything into his care. God did a mighty work in my heart through this situation. I was broken. God used my lack of generosity in that conversation with my bride as a turning point. He woke me up. He woke me up and helped me to realize for the first time the differences between the world's economy and God's economy. The world's economy, see, is all about financial independence and accumulation, earthly things, external circumstances, being self-dependent, having treasures that can be stolen. It's about being served and acquiring. It's temporary, and it's a 50-year plan. But God's economy is dependence on him. It's about subtraction from our lives. It's about heavenly things and internal peace and being dependent on the Holy Spirit. Treasures that can't be stolen. Treasures that are safe. It's about serving others, giving to others. It's eternal and it's all about a 10,000 year plan. That's God's economy. Possibly the greatest definition I've ever heard about God's economy is something that we once heard our pastor say. And if you know Bill well, his comparison to dessert makes perfect sense. But he said, you know, God's economy is like a pie that never runs out. Never runs out. Isn't that good? Isn't that rich? His economy sees no limits. Let me show you a picture to prove to you that we have a problem. Check this out. What is self-storage anyway? By God's grace, I've had the privilege of being in 40 different countries, and this is something I see only here at home. 
We've got so much stuff that we pile it into self-storage. We spend money to store stuff. It collects dust. This makes no sense to me. It's just collecting dust. Sell it and, and go meet somebody's need with that money. I mean, this is a problem we have on our hands that we have to admit. We love stuff. John D. Rockefeller, at one point, he was the richest man in the world. He was the first American billionaire, and he was asked one time the question, how much money is enough? And maybe you've heard his answer. It was just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. We can get trapped in that same mindset. And we see a contrast to this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd. They were putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow, a poor widow, she came. She put two very small copper coins. They were worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, she put in everything. She put in all she had to live on. Now I imagine in the context of the Acts 2 congregation, this woman in this passage would be a lot more comfortable, a lot more comfortable than John Rockefeller. I'm reminded of when we're all toddlers. We learn this nasty, dreadful word. M-I-N-E. Mine. It's a word that we relentlessly try to rid of our children and grandchildren's vocabulary. But unfortunately, if we were to admit it, many of us carry that habit of mine into adulthood and even into retirement. So as we leave today in our nice cars, we go to really nice lunches and drive home to our nice homes, I want to be clear about something. I want to be very, very clear about something. Jesus is not against you possessing things, but he is against things possessing you. He's not against you possessing things. This isn't about adopting a poverty mentality. This isn't about saying, wait, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't deserve these nice things, right? Because every good, pleasing, and perfect gift comes from God. Everything you have that pleases you in any way, every good thing that you have is an extension of his generosity in your life. And so it's never saying to the Father, I don't want these gifts. I don't deserve these gifts. These gifts don't belong in my life, right? And, and adopting this poverty mentality, that's not what we're saying here. We're saying don't let things possess you. Don't live your life clinging so tightly to everything that you can't notice the needs around you, that you're unwilling to meet those needs when you see them. Let go. Just let go of those things. Be set free from things in your life that possess you. And as our brothers and sisters in Acts 2 begin living that life where you generously meet one another's needs. I, I don't know. I don't know what a higher level of generosity looks like in, in your specific life. Personally, it could be your interactions with your spouse. 
or your children or your neighbors or your colleagues at work, maybe in this church, maybe complete strangers, I don't know. But listen, regardless, living out Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, it's not about doing more for God. I'm not saying, hey guys, leave church today and go do more for God. This is an encouragement to leave church and go be more like Him. It's not about doing more, it's about being more like. And oh, our God is generous, isn't He? Just look at your life. He's so generous. Let's have that same spirit of generosity with one another. I'd like to close with a quote from John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. It tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. He was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Florida. They cruise on their 30-foot boat, they play softball, and they collect shells. At first, he says, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this is the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the day of judgment. Look, Lord, look, you see my shells? That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Let's stand and worship together.